Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. In just a bit, we'll talk to Politico's Natasha Bertrand about the Mueller report, which is now out. Uh, and we'll talk about what comes next. We're also going to talk today about whether the Democratic presidential candidate should be appearing on Fox News, Bernie Sanders' opening salvo against the Democratic establishment. And then later, you'll hear the interview we recorded last week with Chelsea Handler, who has a brand new book that's already a New York Times bestseller. Speaking of new books... Our friend Adi Barkin, one of the most inspiring humans on the planet, has written one called Eyes to the Wind, a memoir of love and death, hope and resistance. It'll be out this September, but you can pre-order it now, so please do so. Uh, I can't wait to read that book. I pre-ordered my copy last night. Me too. Me too. I'm also um, prematurely crying over it because I, I already know the impact it's going to have on me. Yeah, no, I'm... I, the same way. And don't miss Pod Save the World this week. Tommy and Ben talk about the arrest of WikiLeaks' Julian Assange and what we know about Bernie Sanders' foreign policy worldview. Finally, we have two new 2020 candidate interviews out as bonus pods this week. Dan talked to Governor Jay Inslee when we were up in New Hampshire over the weekend, and I spoke to Senator Kamala Harris here in Los Angeles. Great interviews. Check them out. We're just rolling through these candidate interviews. Of course, now we've got like 500 left, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, on to the news. A lightly redacted version. I don't know how much work the word uh, lightly is doing there. A lightly redacted version of special counsel Robert Mueller's report about his investigation into Donald Trump and his campaign has finally, finally been made public after weeks of waiting and one last press conference from Attorney General William Barr. And here to walk us through all the revelations and answer all our questions is the brilliant Natasha Bertrand of Politico, who's been covering the story from the beginning. Natasha, welcome to the pod. Um, is this the full exoneration we were promised? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's clearly, and I'm still reading through it, um, and I don't want to pretend to have fully digested all of it, but, you know, it, it's interesting just how many... Um, contacts there were between the campaign and the Russians that we didn't actually even know about that are outlined in in this report in volume one, which is the collusion and conspiracy aspect of the report, um, but which did not apparently, according to Mueller, rise to the level of a criminal conspiracy um, because there wasn't that kind of, you know, smoking gun agreement um, to coordinate to win the election. Um, But, you know, that didn't stop the Russians from trying. And there's a bunch of new stuff in here about how, you know, 
um, Vladimir Putin kind of enlisted his uh, oligarchs to, you know, reach out to the campaign um, and the transition team after the election, um, and how he was very, very eager to establish this kind of direct line of contact with them um, as soon as possible. Um, and then, you know, with regard to the obstruction aspect of this, I also haven't gotten a chance to read through it fully. Um, but it looks like, you know, it, Mueller's decision was based, at least in part, on, you know, a decision by the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice, um, you know, the, the policy that says they can't indict uh, a sitting president. And there's a line in there that says that, you know, it wouldn't have been fair for them um, to make a decision when you can't bring a charge anyway. Um, you know, just going to point out that that seems to be in direct contrast and conflict with what Barr said during his press conference today, which is that the OLC policy did not factor into Mueller's decision to kind of punt on that question. It appears as though it actually did. Um, and also a lot of really interesting stuff in here about, um, you know, what Don McGahn told the special counsel and how angry Trump was when Mueller was actually appointed. Yeah, so I, I, I want to dig into all of the uh, obstruction part of the report uh, in a bit, but just back to the conspiracy and collusion part, what were the biggest takeaways for you in terms of the 108 pages in the report that describe contacts between the Trump campaign and Russians? What, what sort of stuck out at you as, as new that you hadn't really um, known about before? Um, so, you know, this this portion of the report was kind of frustrating because in many instances, um, Mueller would kind of lay out what witnesses had told him and what the president had said in his written answers, but would not himself draw a conclusion as to whether or not those um, testimonies were reliable or verifiable. Um, so, for example, you know, there he went through the Trump Tower meeting um, stuff, and he said that you know, Mueller, uh, that Trump and his, he had not necessarily had told the office that he did not know that his kids and um, his campaign chairman were going to meet with uh, Veselnitskaya and the Russians to get this dirt on Hillary Clinton, but that uh, the the office really wasn't able to determine either way whether or not Trump was, was aware of it. They were just kind of going off of his um, his word there. But but yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of other stuff in here, like the fact that Alpha Bank's co-founder was enlisted um, by Putin to reach out to the Trump transition uh, directly in order to halt the U.S. from putting more sanctions on Russia and to kind of establish this better relationship with the campaign and with the incoming administration, which is interesting because, of course, as we all know, there's this weird... Um, connection between the Alpha Bank server and the Trump Organization server that's never actually been fully explained. Oh, yeah. And that is also not really, uh, Mueller doesn't go into the Alpha Bank um, server um, stuff in this report, um, for what I can tell. Um, so, you know, that's kind of an interesting role for Alpha there. And then, of course, there's also a whole lot of stuff about the head of Russia's sovereign wealth fund, um, who, you know, reached out to the campaign via various contacts and tried especially hard to get in touch with Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr. Um, to facilitate these kind of backdoor channels. Um, Mueller, you know, reaffirms that Kushner wanted to set up a back channel using Russian embassy facilities to talk about Syria. Um, and then, you know, another interesting thing that Mueller apparently discovered um, was about the infamous P-tape, which is that <laughs> apparently Michael Cohen was told that the tape and any other kind of tapes um, were that might exist of compromising information of Trump were fake. 
and that he had, you know, an associate over there had effectively stopped those tapes from being disseminated um, to the media and, you know, more, more widely. So a couple of interesting, interesting things in there. But overall, this is a lot of what we already knew. And again, it's a little bit frustrating because Mueller doesn't actually draw a lot of independent conclusions, including about the UN, uh, the Ukraine platform change yeah. at the RNC convention, which he says, look, you know, J.D. Gordon told us this, this other person told us this. Um, we didn't find any evidence that it was directed by Russia or directed by Trump directly. Um, but, you know, we still don't really know why this action was taken. Natasha, there was another element of the Trump team's efforts to collude, I guess, or to participate in a conspiracy that they failed to participate in, where it talks about Trump directing Michael Flynn to try to get uh, Hillary's emails and talks about Trump directing or Flynn reaching out to two people, Peter Smith, which we sort of knew about from public reporting and this Grassley staffer named Barbara Ledeen. And ultimately, I was like, that seems like a pretty big bombshell to me. What was your reaction to that revelation in the report? Yeah, you're totally right. I totally left that out by accident. Um, that's a huge one. That's that's absolutely massive. Um, you know, I guess it's not necessarily a surprise that the president wanted to find Clinton's emails. He had made that pretty clear. But the fact that he actually directed Michael Flynn to do it kind of connects a lot of dots that we hadn't known about before. We were trying to kind of figure out Peter Smith's relationship with Michael Flynn, and we could never determine what kind of communication they had with regard to the Clinton email search. But now we know that it was actually direct request from Flynn to Peter Smith to keep doing this project because, you know, it's not that Peter Smith initiated the the search on Michael Flynn's request because he had apparently been looking for the emails from December of 2015. Um, and, and that in itself is notable because, you know, that is around the time that Russia started to, you know, hack into the DNC. It's when, um, you know, the Russians were kind of preparing to release the, the stolen emails and figuring out how they were going to disseminate them. Um, so all this was kind of happening simultaneously. And I think, you know, when you when you think about whether or not a crime was committed here, um, the only saving grace, it seems like, was that Peter Smith was a little bit um, incompetent. He really wanted to, you know, connect with the Russian hackers. He told a cybersecurity researcher named Matt Tate that, you know, that he really didn't have any... Um, uh, you know, objection to connecting with dark web hackers, even if they were Russian, because he just wanted to find the email. So if that had happened, and if, you know, if, if Peter Smith, at the direction of someone on the campaign, was was effectively um, helping and encouraging the Russians to hack the Democrats, then that would have been a very serious crime. But because Mueller was never able to, because Mueller was able to establish that he never actually made that contact. Um, it appears as though they were kind of let off the hook on this one. Yeah, it does seem like in quite a few places, the behavior of Trump and his campaign sort of walked right up to the edge of criminality and might have gone over that edge were it not for either people deleting communications via, you know, secure communications channels like, you know, WhatsApp or Signal um, or their own sort of bumbling incompetence, like you just said. I mean, I, I thought it was very interesting about the famous Trump Tower meeting. 
um, when they talked about like you know a big question has been why hasn't why wasn't Don Jr. indicted? Basically, Mueller says the government would uh, unlikely to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the June 9th meeting participants had general knowledge that their conduct the conduct was unlawful. The investigation has not developed evidence that the participants in the meeting were familiar with the foreign contribution ban or the application of federal law to the relevant factual context. So I guess that means that if Don Jr. and company didn't know that what they were doing was possibly committing a crime, then they didn't commit the crime. Right. And this is one of these weird areas, I think, and and Ryan Goodman of NYU um, was saying this uh, also, which is that campaign finance law is one of those weird areas of the law where ignorance of the law actually is kind of an excuse. Yeah. Um, And it's, you know, again, the fact that they were so unfamiliar with the machinations of how to run a campaign and, you know, the ins and outs of of campaign finance regulations really, I guess, does seem to to have saved them here because it's very clear that they were prepared to accept, um, you know, a foreign contribution to the campaign that would have been very valuable to them. I mean, if they had been given anything of use um, by the Russians with regard to Hillary Clinton, then this this whole scenario would have turned out very differently, I think. Yeah. Natasha, I'm, I wanted to, you know, the last time you were on the podcast, we t- was right around the time of Barr's confirmation. And now, you know, he's been confirmed. He had this press conference today. I wanted to get your reaction to his performance. Um, what was surprising to you? Was there, was there stuff that was troubling? It was uh, unique, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a generous way to put it. Um, it <laughs> I'm so was, generous. Uh, so I'll just I'll just say what I've heard from you know former DOJ officials and legal experts and people on both sides of the aisle um, who watched this, which is that it it was striking to them in the first instance how often Barr used the president's language, like verbatim language, to describe um, what he considered to be the top-line findings of Mueller's report, which is no collusion. You know, he said that many, many times. um, And he completely neglected to mention any of the many, many Americans who were indicted as a result of this investigation. I mean, if you had been just listening to his um, press conference and had not been following anything that had happened in the last two years, you wouldn't even know that the president's, you know, campaign chairman, deputy campaign chairman, national security advisor, personal lawyer, were all indicted as a result of this investigation. Um, His, you know, his categorical statement that there was no collusion, for example, by the campaign completely leaves out the myriad, you know, inappropriate contacts that members of his campaign did have with Russians, maybe not Russian government officials, but certainly with Russia-linked nationals. Um, that's something that you would you would never know if you had just gotten Barr's version of this and not been able to read the report yourself. You would have never known, you know, that Putin was enlisting his oligarchs to reach out to the transition team and try to establish these back-channel lines of communication to an administration that was very naive and very susceptible to any kind of influence, let alone foreign influence um, from a country that the president was already very um, sympathetic to. So, you know, we, it was it was clear, very clear to, to the experts, I'll say, that were listening to this, that the main purpose of it was to set the narrative. Um, I think that's very obvious. And to create this kind of PR spin and create an environment where, the report might land 
on a softer cushion. I don't think it's had the ten- intended effect on people who have been able to and who have wanted to read the full report. Um, but, you know, it certainly created headlines for, for a couple hours. And I think that's what ultimately they were trying to do. But but again, you know, this is the attorney general of the United States. This is not the president's personal attorney. And, you know, one former FBI official um, who left the who left the uh, FBI in 2017 told me um, any any you know reason to give him the benefit of the doubt has now completely evaporated. Yeah, I mean, look, before Barr's letter ever came out, it seemed like legal experts, the majority of legal experts, said, "Here's the deal." You know, Department of Justice guidelines say that you can't indict a sinning president. So if Mueller really finds all this evidence of obstruction, what it, what he's going to say or what he's going to try to communicate is this is up to Congress. This is why you have impeachment proceedings, because it's Congress's job to hold the president accountable while in office because a sitting president can't be indicted. Isn't that essentially almost exactly what Mueller says in this report? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, I also think that the idea that Barr would just go ahead and clear the president of, of obstruction on this one was was obviously a very deliberate, deliberate move. Um, there is no reason why he should have been involved in that decision. Um, but then again, you have to, no legitimate reason why he should have been involved, knowing the kind of public pressure that that you know, this report and the investigation was under and the scrutiny it was under. But that being said, the regulations are kind of what they're confined to at this point. So the special counsel regulations were a complete overcorrection from the star era. Right. Right. And and so what you have now is is the, the special counsel is directly accountable to the attorney general and the attorney general if he wanted to, didn't even have to release the report at all. Now, that would have been politically, you know, completely unacceptable, and there would have been, you know, a lot of hell to pay if if he hadn't released it to Congress, at least. But they are kind of a victim to the regulations, which do not provide a mechanism by which Mueller could go directly to Congress, if that is indeed what his recommendation is. It was clear in the report that he... He did intend for Congress to make this final determination, but but the the regulations stipulate that he has to go through the attorney general. And if the attorney general, you know, considers himself to be an arbiter in this, which Bill Barr obviously does, um, perhaps to a you know an excessive extent, then it's really up to him to make these decisions. So I think maybe what we'll see after this whole thing is over is maybe a tweaking of the special counsel regulations to deal with this problem, because we went from one extreme in the star era to another, it seems. Yeah. Um, As you go on and and do your reporting, what are the big questions you still have that you're going to be tracking down answers to? Um, So, you know, I'm still really interested in, you know, why exactly... Mueller decided not to answer this question. I think that we we still don't really know why he he because we're getting two different answers, right? So Barr said that he did not rely on the OLC opinion. Um, Mueller says that he wanted to, you know Congress maybe to look at it, but we still don't really know what the team, what the deliberations like were like internally about the obstruction question. Um, you know, another question I would like answered is how the Mueller team has been viewing all of this and whether or not they were even told about this press conference this morning beforehand, um, how they have viewed the rollout of a report that they worked on for two years. Um, And then, you know, just 
just going back to the collusion aspect of the report, why, you know, why none of this rose to the level of a criminal conspiracy? I don't think that that is particularly well laid out, especially because, you know, we still haven't gotten to the Roger Stone trial, which is going to reveal perhaps a lot about the potential, you know, coordination that went on um, between the campaign and WikiLeaks and potentially even Russia. Mm. Um, so why, why, what is the rationale behind that? Why did he end the investigation when he did? I don't think we've gotten a good answer to that either, especially because of so many outstanding things, including Rick Gates' cooperation. Um, so, so a lot of a lot of things that need to be um, farmed out a bit. But those are the biggest ones for me: is just the rationale underlying some of these decisions in greater detail, and also, you know, what the Mueller team's reaction has been watching Barr kind of spin this the way he has. Natasha, one last question for you. It, it's indicated in the report that Mueller's team made a number of referrals for to other elements of the Justice Department uh, for criminal prosecution. Uh, we know of only a handful of those. Do you have any indication from your sources what else we should be looking for for uh, future criminal for future indictments or charges to come out of this report? No, I mean all I've all we know right now is what's been publicly reported, but that's that's a really good question. I think that we have yet to see just how much he has, uh, you know, farmed out from this investigation, especially because there could very well be, you know, additional sealed indictments, not from Mueller apparently, but you know, out of the Southern District of New York or in Washington D.C., um, stemming from things that Mueller did hand off. Um, I think the Trump inaugural committee investigation is going to be a really big one. Um, obviously, the Roger Stone trial is going to reveal a lot. But, you know, maybe some of these unanswered questions that we all have are going to be resolved by the U.S. Attorney's offices in, in various parts of the country. Um, and we also have to remember that there might still be an ongoing counterintelligence investigation, and that could be the reason why some of these people um, haven't been charged, because to do so could disrupt that ongoing investigation. So I think there's a lot more to come on this. I think this is, you know, definitely a a good, you know, start to understanding what happened, but there are still so many threads that need to be pulled. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we very much look forward to uh, all your continued reporting on this issue. Thanks so much for having me. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. 
Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. All right, we're back. Dan, I want to get your take on your your multiple takes on everything that's uh, happened this morning. I do want to start with <laughs> Trump's quote upon learning of Mueller's appointment, which is, exists in this report, which is my favorite quote of the day. Oh, my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm fucked. <laughs> does, that, does that sound like the... Musings of an innocent man. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. I had to, I saw that quote. I think you might even have texted that, a tweet with that quote in it. And I was sure it was bullshit. I just, I thought it was like <laughs> onion joke. So I had to quickly start scanning to see that it, yes, in fact, it was real. And I think it is A, funny, B, an indication <laughs> of guilt, but also is sort of a Rosetta Stone to understand everything that unfolded afterwards, which is even if in Trump's, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but if even in Trump's mind, he believed he was innocent of quote unquote collusion or conspiracy to defraud the electorate or whatever you want to think about what was encapsulated in volume one of the Mueller report, Trump knew that he had been living crime adjacent his entire life. And if you had a super cop like Bob Mueller on your case, he was going to uncover all kinds of things, which is why he was willing to engage multiple times in what was obstruction of justice. And that sort of helps us understand. It explains what Trump did, explains how he's been acting from the beginning and says that there's a lot more there are a lot more threads to pull here as we as Congress and the American public digest the specifics of the obstruction case against the president. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, let's start with um, the the collusion conspiracy chapter, right? And so basically, Mueller lays out in the report, and this is this is a quote from the report. Uh, in sum, the investigation established multiple links between Trump campaign officials and individuals tied to the Russian government. Those links included Russian offers of assistance to the campaign. In some instances, the campaign was receptive to the offer, while in other instances, the campaign officials shied away. So basically what Mueller lays out in 108 pages, as we said, of contacts between the Trump campaign and, and Russia, is that multiple times the Ru- Russia knew that they were interfering with the election to try to elect Donald Trump, and they thought they would reach out to the Trump campaign to see if they wanted more assistance to win. And the Trump campaign multiple times said, yes, give us the assistance. We want to win. But because there was no criminal, because there wasn't a explicit conspiracy, 
um, between the Trump campaign and the Russians that said, hey, um, let's work together on this and let's see that to fruition. <laughs> um, that, you know, Mueller didn't charge anyone with an actual criminal conspiracy. And also we should say, by the way, that Mueller lays out in the report that what we've been talking about forever, which is this word collusion is sort of bullshit. Like he basically says, you hear this on TV, you hear the president's people talking about it. It's not really a term. What I'm talking about here is conspiracy as it is defined legally um, and sort of cooperation, which is a tacit agreement between multiple parties to sort of commit a crime together. And because there weren't those tacit agreements or because um, Mueller didn't find sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that conspiracy. Um, that's why, you know, Don Jr. and some of these other goobers weren't actually charged. Is yes. that, was that sort of your take on the whole conspiracy part? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, if one day in time there is a Trump library somewhere engraved on the side of will be saved by his own stupidity because these people tried to commit multiple crimes. They knew Russia was interfering with the election. They knew Russia was doing so to help Trump. They wanted to take advantage of that help. They were just too stupid to commit the actual crime that Mueller felt he could charge. Yeah. And that's incredibly important because we've talked about this for so long. Collusion is a fake word. It doesn't mean anything. The president really sort of shifted the Overton window on this, and the press fell for it hook, line, and sinker, this idea that we that the only crimes, the only way in which Trump could be found of any wrongdoing would be if he could be found of the ultimate wrongdoing, which was in an always improbable case where there was some you know, explicit agreement between Trump and Russia to steal the election, which was never going to happen because like Trump doesn't have the capacity to engage in such a complicated conspiracy. But what they do, they were engaged in wrongdoing throughout the process. And this report is very bad for Trump. Whether that will lead to political accountability is a conversation we'll have later in the pod. But it lays out a lot of wrongdoing, a lot of lying on Trump and his associates. And we should not, this is not, they're not innocent of anything. They colluded all over the place. They just were incapable of maximizing their collusion to the point of crime. Yeah, I mean, the president tried to cheat to win the election. He tried on multiple occasions to access stolen documents from his opponent. He wanted those emails. He tried multiple ways to get them. The report lays out um, the president of the United States ordered Michael Flynn to find the deleted Clinton emails. Um, Michael Flynn then contacted Peter Smith, who has ended up dead since then. Um, And then Peter Smith put together a whole plan about how they were going to try to um, contact foreign intelligence services, not just Russia, but uh, China, Iran, (laughs) other foreign powers to try to find these deleted emails. But, you know, it never went anywhere because Peter Smith was kind of a bumbling idiot and didn't know how to do it. But Trump wanted those emails. Trump, as we all know, said, Russia, if you're listening, find find Hillary Clinton's emails. And then Mueller says in this report, five hours after Trump did that, said that to the public, um, was the first time that Russian military intelligence hackers hacked into or tried to hack into Hillary Clinton's emails. So we know from this report that Donald Trump wanted stolen documents from his opponent so he could win the election. And he knew that getting those stolen documents involved um, working with a foreign power that he also knew was trying to interfere with our election. We know this. It's all laid out in in Robert Mueller's report here. (laughs) 
It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's it's truly. I mean, Brian Fallon, uh, former uh, Hillary Clinton spokesperson from the 2016 campaign, made this point, which I think is important, which is if there had not been really good reporting from the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, others over the last two two and a half years here, um, as well as congressional oversight. That if we had learned everything in this report for the first time today, oh yeah, as opposed to a slow drip, if we had just if there had been no information, and all of a sudden this report comes out, four hundred some pages, just detailing a massive amount of wrongdoing, whether it reaches a criminal standard or not, is an open question. But wrongdoing, lying about wrongdoing, it would be a political earthquake like we have never seen before. What happened in this report goes well beyond. What was a let? What came out in Watergate? Well beyond. Yeah, I mean, well, in addition to trying to find the emails on the front end, um, Mueller also found that the president himself and his campaign knew that the stolen DNC emails were going to be released before they were actually released. They put together a press plan to capitalize off of it. Trump was in contact with members of his campaign and Roger Stone. Of course, all the Roger Stone stuff is redacted because that trial is still to come. Um, but it's it's pretty clear. That Trump was involved and Trump knew that WikiLeaks was going to uh, disseminate these emails and the campaign was basically putting a plan to help coordinate and disseminate those emails. Now, the reason so you might say, like, why weren't any of them charged with this? Well, the problem is, is WikiLeaks as the intermediary here. Right. So Russian hackers stole the emails. They committed the crime. That's the hack. Right. Then they gave those emails to WikiLeaks to publish WikiLeaks publishing those emails is not itself a crime. This is partly under press protections. This has to do with the whole Assange thing that we just saw happen last week too, right? Like if you, you know, WikiLeaks is an organization publishing documents that just happen to be stolen, not necessarily a crime. And then the Trump campaign working with WikiLeaks to then disseminate those stolen documents and to have a press plan around how they could capitalize off it and win the campaign, not necessarily a crime, but still pretty fucking bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Right. Like doesn't need it's, to be a crime is not great. I, and this is I think there are a couple important points about this, which one is that this is the president of the United States. Yeah. This, and he we have to hold him to a higher standard than just the average criminal defendant. There should be political accountability for activity that is obviously wrongdoing, but is simply does not meet the threshold for being charged because of technicalities. That's what this is. It's not that the, this report did not find that Trump in his campaign did not do bad things. It found out that the bad things they did were not done in the exact way in which you would charge a crime. There's a difference between not being charged and being innocent. And this is not a declaration of innocence of Trump or anyone around him. It's an explication in great detail of how they are guilty of trying to cheat and to win the election, as you put it. That's exactly what they did. Now, Bob Mueller made a conclusion that the way in which they did it did not meet the technical definitions of a crime, but that doesn't change how both the the public, Congress, and history should render judgment on what happened. And by the way, this wasn't just cheating and garden variety corruption with, you know, people within the United States, like shady characters who want to help Trump win the election. It's not just that kind of cheating. It is 
a, there was a, a foreign power that attacked our election, right? This is this is like disloyalty to the United States. And to think back now to the fucking Helsinki press conference when Donald Trump is standing next to Vladimir Putin and denies what what's in this report stated as a fact over and over again with a ton of evidence that uh, the Russians hacked into our election, denies the fact that Russia ever interfered with our election, denies the conclusions of American intelligence, of the American law enforcement, and sides with Vladimir Putin in front of the whole world. Like, and all these fucking Republicans now are like, oh, all these Democrats who uh, called Donald Trump a traitor or disloyal or all this kind of thing, they owe him an apology. No, it's fucking disloyal to the United States how Donald Trump and his campaign acted throughout this throughout the 2016 election. The other thing that I th- I did you mentioned this I thought was really notable was that the Trump campaign created a communications plan around maximizing the disclosure of the hacked Clinton and DNC emails. Right. And that is notable because this collection of JV Republican staffers and Fox Green Room rejects have not written a plan in their entire lives. <laughs> like the fact that they actually wrote a plan for this is notable for how serious they took and what an opportunity they saw it was. This wasn't like on a whiteboard with like infrastructure week and our plan to roll out our childcare policy. The only, this is the only thing they had a plan on the entire campaign. The rest of it was a bunch of uh, ass backwards freelancing. Yeah. So now to move on to the obstruction part of the report, um, I do think, and you mentioned this, the the paragraph that sort of sums it up here is, um, you know, they talk about the firing of Comey and the report says the evidence does not establish that the termination of Comey was designed to cover up a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia, right? And we know that to be true because Mueller did not find a consp- he did not find enough evidence to establish the conspiracy. He did not indict anyone based on that conspiracy. But then the report goes on to say, but the evidence does indicate that a thorough FBI investigation would uncover facts about the campaign and the president personally that the president could have understood to be crimes or that would give rise to personal and political concerns. So right there, Bob Mueller is saying that is the motive to obstruct justice that Trump had. So this whole idea that fucking William Barr, when he wrote the four page letter, say, said, you know, Trump couldn't possibly have obstructed justice because there was no underlying crime related to collusion. Well, yeah, that's not the point. Trump obstructed justice because Trump was worried, as you said, that Mueller was going to uncover his other crimes. And guess what? Mueller did uncover his other crimes, and so did SDNY, because when he referred the Cohen case to SDNY, he found that that Michael Cohen committed a crime uh, in relation to the hush money payments, and that... um, uh, Donald Trump was implicated in that crime as an unindicted co-conspirator. So it's like there was, of course, a corrupt intent to obstruct the investigation. Donald Trump was worried that Mueller would find all these other crimes. And guess what? They did. Yes. I mean, long before he was president of the United States, Donald Trump was mayor of Crime Town because he has been, whether it is the tax fraud uncovered by the New York Times, the hush money payments uncovered by SDNY, like Trump University, rampant fraud, corruption, payoffs, things that happened in Atlantic City all across the board, he had a massive amount of criminal exposure. And he acted just like that and has continued to act just like that. And he has had Bill Barr as his uh, willing enabler for the last couple months here. Yeah. And so, you know, Mueller goes on to list 10 different instances of obstruction, everything from, you know, firing Comey, um, 
you know, the president directed White House counsel Don McGahn to fire Mueller and then told him to deny that he directed him to fire Mueller. Uh, And that says McGahn then, quote, called his lawyer, drove to the White House, packed up his office and prepared to submit his resignation letter and told then chief of staff Rents Priebus that uh, the president was asking him to do crazy shit. (laughs) I mean, I think the McGahn thing is really interesting on a couple of levels, because one, that's a fucking crime Two, for a. the president to instruct a subordinate to lie, which McGahn did not do, but the mere instruction, the mere instruction to lie is obstruction. And that is something that is one of the reasons I believe that it was pretty clear that Mueller was unwilling to quote unquote exonerate Trump from this. But there's also something that McGahn is just like a fucking metaphor for the Republican party right now, which is the president of the United States instructs him to commit a crime and to do something that McGahn believes would be an impeachable offense for the president. He drives to the White House, packs up his stuff, says he's going to resign. Does he resign? No. <laughs> he, go, he he was instructed to commit a crime on a Saturday and he went to work on a Monday and stayed in the job for another fucking year because he thought it was a great way to put judges on the bench who would rule in favor of corporations and overturn Roe v. Wade. So he like they're willing to hang out with criminals, willing to cover up crimes as long as you get to do your conservative shit. And that is the Republican Party in the Trump era and why we have a problem that goes long beyond after the individual one leaves the stage. So basically, you know, Robert Mueller uh, gives us a motive and a corrupt intent for Trump to obstruct justice because he's worried that um, this investigation will uh, produce more evidence of other crimes that he may have committed or things that will be personally embarrassing to him. So he's got the motive. And then Mueller goes on in great detail to list 10 different instances where the president of the United States ordered his aides to obstruct justice, tried to obstruct justice himself. Uh, And because the aides refused to carry out his orders, Mueller basically says that's why Trump's aides weren't uh, indicted on obstruction of justice, because they refused. But he doesn't say that that's why Trump is scot-free, because telling someone to obstruct justice is still a crime. So he, uh, he has all this evidence of crime and of obstruction of justice, And then now we get to the point where we think about this fucking letter from Attorney General Barr a couple weeks ago that exonerates the president of obstruction of justice because he says, you know, oh, Bob Mueller just couldn't really make a a determination on this either way. So I decided to step in and say that he's exonerated. Well, it turns out that's not that's not what Bob Mueller did at all. Um, and, you know, Ari Mulber uh, in a couple of tweets put this pretty succinctly. He said, Barr was wrong. Mueller report states DOJ rules don't allow indicting president. So as policy, the Mueller probe avoided any approach that would, quote, result in a judgment the president committed crimes. Mueller explicitly says as a matter of DOJ rules, quote, no charges can be brought against POTUS. So Barr's letter was incorrect in its depiction of Mueller. And then Mueller goes on to say many different times in the report, basically, this is up to Congress. So what the fuck was Bill Barr doing? Well, I think it's pretty clear what he was doing, which was he, he was putting in the fix for Donald Trump. How did he think he's going to get away with this is the real question, because we know what he was doing. But like, did he think he was going to be able to fucking get away with this forever? I mean, he still might, I guess. I mean, get, it depends on what you mean by get away with it. Right. What is the yeah. accountability that will come to Bill Barr? 
he got what he wanted, which was he is going to forever be in Trump's debt. Uh, he wanted this job for this reason. We know this because he auditioned for it by writing a 19-page memo, uh, raising questions about the legitimacy of the Mueller investigation. He has played his role exactly through. I think the three Democrats, uh, Joe Manchin, Doug Jones, and Kirsten Sinema, who voted for Bill, for Bill Barr, have a lot to answer for. Yeah. Or at least Kirsten Sinema and Doug Jones. Joe Manchin is just being Joe Manchin, and we're sort of fucking stuck with that. <laughs> um, I think they're, 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 there's going to be a lot of discussion about what Democrats do next. Um, and how they take this. And there's a lot of threads to pull for um, Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler in the over in the committees in the House with oversight authority over elements of this report. There's the question of when Bob Mueller uh, will testify and when we will hear from Bob Mueller, which yeah. will obviously be uh, interesting content, if you will. But I think there's a question about what Democrats do with Bill Barr, because what he did here was deeply inappropriate. It was deeply dishonest. It... It was an abuse of power. Um, undermined the traditional independence that an attorney general should have from the president. It will raise questions about any and every decision he makes about corruption and criminality related to Trump and his administration for the next uh, two years here and, you know, God forbid, the four years going forward. And so I think that, like, we, like, a lot of Democrats have called for Bill Barter to resign today, which he's obviously not going to do. But what do you think about bringing up Bill Barr on either impeachment or censure in the House? I mean, yes, because he didn't just, I mean, you put it politely, he undermined the independence between uh, the attorney general and the uh, the president. He fucking obliterated it. I mean, he sounded, the letter was bad enough. The press conference this morning, he basically sounded like a slightly more well-spoken Fox pundit talking about, you know, no collusion and the and the president was frustrated. He he basically said that the president obstructed justice because he was frustrated about the investigation. I guess that's I guess if you uh, if you get charged with obstruction of justice, that's a new defense now that you can make. Well, I was pretty frustrated. That's why I tried to break the law. <laughs> yes, it's true. If you if any of our listeners get pulled over for speeding, Bill Barr has instructed you to tell the cop that you were frustrated by the speed limit. <laughs> I mean, and look, don't 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 actually do that, people. That's a bad no, idea. No, it's a bad idea. There's a don't few. Sp- don't speed. Drive safe. There's a few other questions. I mean, before we get to bar and what the Democrats should do too, there is a few other questions. You know, from from Mueller uh, when they finally get Mueller before Congress, which is Mueller basically says that he in the report he saw Trump's written answers to his questions as inadequate, and yet he did not subpoena Trump. He didn't ever. He never actually had a sit down interview with Trump, and basically. The report says he didn't because it was he was basically like I have enough evidence that he obstructed justice, <laughs> um, but then basically you know leaves it to Congress um, partly because of these DOJ guidelines. But I guess my my question to Mueller is like why didn't he proceed with the subpoena? Uh, why didn't he try to sit down for Trump with an interview? I think I've wondered this question for a long time, and I thought Preet Bahara had a very good answer when he spoke to you guys on the Monday pod right after the bar letter came out, which is there. this would have wound its way through the court for years and probably extended right. beyond um, Trump's reelection. And therefore, hamper- so if you go down the road of 
subpoenaing the of subpoenaing the president having that go all the way to Supreme Court, you can't really conclude the report and send the evidence to Congress until after the election. So I think this is maybe the most favorable interpretation, I think, is that he was caught between is it important both for the propriety of his investigation and for the American public to conclude it with enough time for the American public to digest it without dropping it as some sort of bomb you know, the month before the election, sort of pulling a Comey, if you will, yeah. um, and pushing this all the way to the end, which would mean that the Americans would very, very potentially go to the polls in 2020 without knowing Bob Mueller's conclusions, which Bob Mueller, given what a straight error he is, probably thinks that's both unfair to the public and unfair to Trump, Yeah, right? Depending on what he thought he would find. As that's the only explanation I can give, but in, but in taking that path, I think he sort of doomed his... Investigation, because if you have to show corrupt intent to uh, for his Trump's actions to invoke obstruction of justice, then you are it's pretty impossible to do that without asking the person to their face what their intent was and not just getting some uh, letter written by uh, Rudy Giuliani and Jay Sekulow. Yeah. So let's talk about what the Democrats should do, because, you know, as we said, uh, special counsel regulations don't allow for Mueller to have made an official impeachment referral um, like they might have in the past when um, it was a you know independent when the independent previous independent counsel law was in effect. Um, but Mueller basically this is basically an impeachment referral from from Robert Mueller. He basically says in no uncertain terms. You know, this is up to Congress. Congress has the ability to make sure that the president doesn't obstruct justice. Like he he, he sort of drops a few um, more than hints in the report that Congress should should take this up. So now what do Democrats do? They've they've basically received evidence of the president obstructing justice from the special counsel. The special counsel has basically said in no uncertain terms that he leaves the determination to them. Now, what do the Democrats do? Well, that's the $10,000 fucking question, John. <laughs> I I think the first step, I think we should do this in sequence, right? You don't have to figure out where you're going to go uh, from day one. So I think step one, subpoena all the underlining materials, which I believe uh, that is in process right now. Yep, Jerry Nadler already Mueller, did that. Which I think that is also in process, presuming Mueller requires a subpoena, but get Mueller in front of Congress and get his answer to, the, to these questions about what drove some of the decisions um, were there. I think it is take the as much of the oversight resources within Congress and focus it on pulling all the threads here, digging deeper, having public hearings with key witnesses to hear what they have to say about these things. That is everyone from Jared Kushner to Don Jr. to Barbara Ledeen, the Grassley staffer who was working with Peter Smith on getting the stolen emails. Let's hear from anyone and everyone, and let's do it right now. Let's do it strategically. Let's do it smartly, and let's do it in a way that exposes it to the public, because there's a lot of work that has to be undone to wipe away the impression that Bill Barr left with his willfully dishonest letter of a few weeks ago. Uh, so that's where I would go now, which leads to the question of what do you do about impeachment? And I think you got to start, at, you got to ask the questions uh, that are left remaining in the report before you know the answer to that. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, look, I think back to, you know, the conversation that you and I have had multiple times where um, you have basically counseled Democrats against impeachment because 
this we know where this goes, right? If the House impeaches, if the House holds impeachment hearings, and the House Democrats impeach Donald Trump, which would obviously be on a party line vote uh, because it doesn't look like any Republicans are coming along. Then it goes to the Senate. There's a hearing in the Senate. Chief Justice John Roberts presides. There's no fucking way we're getting, uh, what, 13, 14 Senate Republicans on board to impeach. Who knows if we even get fucking Joe Manchin on board to impeach, right? And so then, um, you know, they fail to convict the the, the president. Um, and the president says, total exoneration. Mitch McConnell says, total exoneration. And he goes free. And now we're, you know, close to the election. So th- that's all the downsides to impeachment. But I will say there's there's sort of a, a middle ground here and that like the focus doesn't necessarily have to be on the Senate and whether the Senate convicts the president. Right. Like we have said for some time that this is going to be decided at the ballot box uh, in 2020, that this is going to be decided at the that the American people are going to decide whether the president is fit for office or not in November of 2020. So that's true. Let's keep that in mind. But let's I don't know, provide the American people with all the evidence, all the testimony, all the underlying documents, all the witnesses and all the testimony, everything they need to make a determination about whether the president is fit for office or not. And obviously, they'll make that determination also based on the fact that he wants to take away their health care, the fact that their wages haven't gone up, the fact that he's a crazy lunatic. Um, So there's going to be a number of factors in there. But why not say part of why we're conducting this impeachment hearing is so the American people have all the information they need to make a determination about this president when they go to the ballot box in 2020. I think the challenge with you did a great job of making my argument, so thank you. Um, the I think the challenge with that is that, that there are two. You can uncover that information in two ways. Mm-hmm. One is through oversight hearings and through the normal course of business, right? Intelligence committee, judiciary committee, oversight committee. You know, just like the Cohen hearing uh, of a few months ago, or whenever that was, because time's a flat circle, but. Um, so that's one way to do it. The other way is to open impeachment hearings through the Judiciary Committee to call witnesses for the purpose of having a vote on impeachment at the end of that process. And if you start that process, you're going to end that process with a vote. Yeah. That is ex- exactly what happened with the Republicans in the 90s around uh, Bill Clinton and you just have to decide if you want to do that. But if you start the process, you will end the process, you will have a vote and if that vote were to fail, that's even worse than my alternative scenario, which is possible. There are a lot of Democrats who are uncomfortable with that. Um, and so I think you there just have to decide whether you do that. I the point the last point I make on this is that you don't get any like Trump doesn't lose electoral votes if he has a scarlet eye on his chest. Right. So this is this is gonna play itself out the same way no matter what. And I am if it was up to me. I would impeach Trump. I said this before. I'd impeach Trump. I'd get him out the 25th Amendment. I'd indict him. There's like any course of uh, legal means to get this man away from our country, I would take. But I just, I think we have to be strategic about what our goal is. And our goal is to expose all of the evidence to the American people about all the things Trump has done wrong in the Russia it measure, but then in everything else, whether it's the tax cut, it's the uh, self-dealing around the Trump hotel, 
massive amounts of corruption left and right, the uh, Gulf states investments and Jared Kushner's failing real estate entities, all in the above. It is the job of the House Democrats to make that information available to American people so they can make a fully informed decision. Yeah. I am very torn on this issue. I'm just very worried about how it plays itself out. Look, I am too, and I and I very much understand the politics. I very much understand that um, most voters out there have not been following this as closely as we have, may never follow it as close as we have, and even those who are, maybe Trump's criminality is baked into their opinion of him. So they either believe he's a criminal and we're going to vote against him anyway, or they're, you know, ride or die with him to the end, or they're unsure about Trump, but it's not because of potential crimes he committed it's because um they don't know if he's serious about taking away the, their health care right so like i get the politics and i get the potential backlash to the politics i just i have a real problem with this report coming out with so much evidence that the president of the united states broke the law that he abused his office that he abused power that he committed obstruction of justice in all these different ways and that because we are worried about the political impact of what happens if we go down the road of impeachment proceedings, we're just going to let it go. And, you know, they didn't let it go with Richard Nixon and he resigned. And, um, you know, you can argue about the Bill Clinton one, but like it, it's just it's so incredible to me. And I, I, I worry so deeply about the precedent it sets to say that we had knowledge that the president committed a series of crimes and but because we Democrats weren't in the majority or didn't have enough votes in both houses and we were worried about the potential backlash and what it would mean for the 2020 election, we just sort of let it go. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's just very it, concerning. It's concerning to me. It really is. And I get and like I said, I get the arguments on both sides of this. But and look, I mean, the other thing is here. We didn't even mention this part of the report. Special counsel found evidence of crimes outside its scope and made 14 criminal referrals to other jurisdictions only two of which we know about. One is the Cohen thing. So, like, there's all, I mean, and we've already talked about the inauguration uh, is getting investigated. His businesses are getting investigated. So who knows what other crimes might come to light? And perhaps that makes the decision for us that if one of these other investigations or multiple other investigations turn up more crimes by Trump, then the political calculus changes on impeachment. Who knows? Yeah, I like. I am certainly not arguing to take it off the table. I think yeah. that would be a mistake to do that because we we may only be looking at the tip of the iceberg, and it's it's very possible that Trump has committed impeachable offenses completely outside of that Mueller doesn't know about. They're outside of the scope of this investigation that should be looked at. Um, you know, by any normal definition, the the hush pay, the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels prior to the election that Trump then lied about would at least. Uh, would at least like be just in the conversation of an impeachable offense. So there, there's a lot more to find here. I just, uh, I just like we just have to be realistic with people because you see this on Twitter all the time, which is like impeach him, impeach him, impeach him. And I worry sometimes people think that me that de- people think that Democrats in Congress and Nancy Pelosi in particular are not taking a step to remove Trump from office, right? And that's not. It is a question of whether you're going to do something to send a signal to the country, to the history books, or to ever about what Trump did. But it is not a decision about whether he comes or goes. The only people who make a decision about whether Trump stays or goes are the American people in November of 2020. And that's what we have to keep in mind. That is that is correct. And that is a good good transition to our next topic, which is 2020. Um, On Monday night, 
Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders participated in a town hall hosted by Fox News. It was the highest rated candidate town hall of the primary season thus far, besting CNN's town hall with Kamala Harris from a few weeks ago. Other Democrats may be appearing on Fox News soon. Amy Klobuchar has already signed up for her own Fox News town hall. Pete Buttigieg is reported to have been in negotiations to do the same thing. Beto O'Rourke said on Wednesday that he'd be willing to go on Fox. And Kamala Harris told me she would, quote, think about it. Her tone didn't suggest she was very excited about it, but she said she would think about it. Um, The network's number one fan, our current president, took notice of the Bernie Town Hall, tweeting, So weird to watch Crazy Bernie on Fox News. Not surprisingly, Brett Baer and the, quote, audience was so smiley and nice. Very strange. And now we have Donna Brazile? (laughs) There's so many great parts of that tweet. Like, we like you know he's part of the team on Fox News and how did we get Donna Brazil and also I love the sh- I also love the shot at Brett Baer who as we know only has a six out of ten on the Trump loyalty scale. <laughs> yeah, probably went down to a four Ugh. after that. Um, so first of all, Dan, did you watch and how do you think Bernie did before we get to the the big question of whether he should have been there in the first place? I did watch it. I thought Bernie did great. He he did. He did fantastic. Uh, was he made strong points? He pushed back really hard against uh, some questions from Brett and Martha McCallum that uh, exposed their bias, if you will. That sort of you know, like it really was an interesting conversation because they are residents of Planet Fox and they only they live within that bubble. Even though they're on the quote unquote news side, their questions happen from this Fox bubble, right? Where like even in the middle of Bernie's town hall, Fox had to do a huge piece with which what I assume is Steve Ducey's son, Peter Ducey, about how amazing the Trump economy has been for Bethlehem, Bethlehem Pennsylvania <laughs> to, in an attempt to try to undermine uh, Bernie's comments about the how the economy is rigged. And it's just a it was just a wild thing. I thought Bernie did great. He was very he had an audience that was very enthusiastic about him. I never found out the exact answer to who that audience was, but I presume that was an audience of Democratic primary voters as the CNN town halls have been as well, I believe. So but he did great. It was it for, from a performance standard, he it was a home run for him, no question. It it appears that the audience was uh Democrats and independents. Um I I read that somewhere. Um well, I, I I agree. I think he did he did very very well uh, for a couple of reasons. One was he needled the hosts a couple times, right? Like he was sort of um, he he was he wasn't exactly friendly to Brett Baer and Martha McCallum all the time. He at one point he said that the Fox Net- News Network uh, doesn't have respect in our world. Um, at one point he sort of joked with them and he said, "Oh, the, the president. I, I, I'm I'm told he watches your network a little bit, right?" Um, so he was he was funny towards them. And then, you know, he really emphasized economic issues. He tried to say that a lot of these economic issues and his economic issues were not, shouldn't be partisan, um, that everyone should want infrastructure spending, that everyone should be afraid of Trump's plan to cut Medicare and Medicaid, doesn't matter what party you are. So I thought that was very strong. And then, of course, that was that great moment that went viral where um, Brett Baer asked the audience if they liked Bernie's Medicare for All plan better than their own private insurance, and they all cheered, which is certainly not something that Fox News expected. Um, so I thought it was great. I thought Now, the question is, you know, what impact will it have on the campaign, uh, if any? What do you think? I, I think it is a huge net positive for Bernie's campaign. It, yeah. I think the challenge for Bernie Sanders is – he has to demonstrate electability. I think he is winning. He is leading in the polls among the declared candidates. Uh, 
by very large margins. He has a massive money advantage over everyone else. He has a bigger campaign. He has more staff. He has serious political support around the country, both from uh, you know important Democrats and but also elected officials as well. Like he is the hands down most likely nominee of the people in the field right now. It is very important for Bernie to demonstrate that he can beat Trump. And going into Fox News and walking out with uh, the heads of Brett Baer and Martha McCallum is a huge win for him. Yeah. And it also, by the way, we know from Trump's tweets, and the New York Times has reported this as well, that Trump and his advisors were nervous about not only Bernie getting a town hall there, but potentially other Democratic candidates infiltrating Fox at getting town hall. So this did make them a little nervous. Um, so I know, Dan, from reading your tweets and also texting you all day long and also knowing you for the last 10 years, um, that you do not think this was ultimately a good idea. Um, not for Bernie to do within the confines of his own campaign, but sort of for Democrats to do in general. Uh, tell us why. Yes. Yeah, so... I understand why Bernie Sanders did this. And if I was advising his campaign, if I worked on his campaign, I would probably tell him to do the same thing. I understand why Pete Buttigieg is reportedly in negotiation to do this. I understand why Amy Klobuchar is, wants to do this. It is an opportunity to get attention. And it is not about courting Fox v viewers. Like, no one is doing that. And if they say that to you, they are being willfully dishonest. What it is is a chance to, quote unquote, go into the lion's den come out looking strong and get all the other press to write a, to write about and talk about and tweet about your appearance on Fox and to get it get it will get you Bernie Sanders on Fox got a hundred times more news coverage than Bernie Sanders on CNN well let me let me just because he was on Fox let me just go back for a minute and it, are you how confident are you that there are no gettable voters for Democrats who watch Fox News? Um, whether it's their Fox News obsessed or just occasional Fox News watchers, like is there so there is there evidence? Or is there there's two ways there's two ways of thinking about this, right? One is are there gettable Democratic primary voters mm -hmm. who watch Fox News uh, a year and a half before or before the election? Right. Unlikely. Unlikely. There's very little evidence of that. There certainly there will be people who tuned into that um, town hall who are Democratic primary voters, but they are not Fox News viewers, right? These are not people who are just like trying to see what came on after the five and stumbled on Bernie Sanders and like, huh, I like his health care plan. That's not how that played itself. Right, right, okay. In the context of a general election, Democrats are obsessed about talking about Fox News viewers. We're like, we got to get Fox News viewers. We got to get, you know, we lost, a, we lost Michigan because we didn't have Fox News viewers. That is a really rudimentary and one-dimensional way of looking at this, which is... In 2012, we did a lot of data analysis of where were the best media outlets to reach undecided voters. Fox was not high on that list. It was not from an efficiency standpoint and not a good use of President Obama's time. And I have to imagine, although I haven't looked at this data since 2012, in the world of Donald Trump, when the Fox News put away the dog whistle and took out the racist bullhorn, there were fewer, quote unquote, up for grabs voters for Democrats. But let me say my bigger point here, which is the Fox, a lot of very important grassroots work has been done by uh, sleeping giants, 
media matters, a lot of incredibly important reporting from people like Jane Mayer and Gabriel Sherman to expose Fox News for what it is, which is not some conservative version of MSNBC. It is a corporate-funded racial grievance machine for the sole purpose of electing Republicans. It exists to protect Trump. It exists to destroy Democrats. News is the coffee grinds in which they smuggle in the cocaine of propaganda. Right. And that we have a great amount of work has been done to make that case to advertisers, to make that case to the public, to make that case to other reporters, to take what they say as a grain of thought. We have come a million miles since Obama was dealing with Fox when we were in the White House in terms of public understanding of the danger of Fox. And if all of a sudden 19 Democrats all go on Fox, it undermines that work. Right. It allows Fox's advertising department to go back to the advertisers who have pulled out because of things that Sean Hannity has said, Tucker Carlson has said, Laura Ingram has said, and say, look, Bernie Sanders comes on here. Amy Klobuchar comes on here. Pete Buttigieg comes on here. And we see we are legitimate. And to get those uh, those advertising dollars back. Do you, the, do you think that works? You know, the head of you, you really think that, that the advertisers would be like, oh, I'm uh I'm going to second guess my decision to to pull the ads because Bernie's on the uh, on the channel. That's the view of Media Matters, which yeah. has been leading the effort to do this. I mean, basically during the Tucker Carlson, Fox has been showing uh, basically dead air because they can't get enough advertisers to yeah. fill the inventory for that show. And see, money is fungible, so that comes out of Fox's bottom line. So I do think we have to think about the fact that. If you do things that help Fox sell more ads, what you were doing is making it easier for them to keep Tucker Carlson on air. Yeah. You were supporting their white supremacist programming, which is incredibly dangerous to America. Right. And I th- I think that that is my concern is that in if the Democratic Party all of a sudden embraces Fox again, and I think we're doing it for sort of dumb political reasons outside of the confines of your own campaign strategy. Right. It, it the um, we are doing a lot of work to rehabilitate Fox in the minds of corporate America and the public writ large. And I think that is potentially damaging the long-term progressive cause of undoing Trumpism in America, which requires limiting the influence of these dangerous propaganda networks, most notably Fox. Yeah, I guess I, I, I look at that is a very compelling argument. I agree with all that. I've been, you know, one of the people uh, highlighting <laughs> all the great work that Media Matters and Jane Mayer and everyone else has been doing to expose how fucking awful that network is. I think it's a cancer on our democracy and probably the worst thing that we have going for us in this country, even worse than Donald Trump in some ways, because it's a propaganda machine. I guess my question is, what is the best way to dismantle that propaganda machine? And there's something appealing to me about every once in a while during a campaign season like this, a couple prominent Democrats going on there and calling the network out for the bullshit that it is once they're on there. Like my, fan, you know, I, I was saying earlier that it was funny that Bernie like needled the hosts. Like, great. I would have like, I would like to see some Democrat go on there and actually take it right to fucking Fox when they have the whole audience there and they have everyone viewing, knowing that they're probably not going to convince a lot of Fox News viewers, but that that moment would go viral. 
and actually talk about what a disgusting racist network propaganda machine it is and sort of bring receipts. That to me would be really cool. <laughs> Great viewing. I would love to see how Fox is. I mean, because my problem, the reason I always say like, don't ever fucking go on Fox. When you watch these people go on Tucker Carlson or go on, you know, uh, Sean Hannity or any of these fucking programs, the whole game is rigged. You don't get to actually communicate to their viewers. You don't get to, it's not a fair fight. They rig the game. They yell over you. They cut to commercial break. It is a waste of fucking time to do that for sure. There is something about the town hall format where the hosts are minimally involved and you get to speak directly to the audience, not just in the town hall, but to the viewers at home, that is appealing about finally piercing the bubble of at least some of the people watching that network and showing them that maybe Democrats aren't the caricature that Fox News always makes them out to be. Um, and I just, to, to me, there's something appealing about that. Yeah, I, and look, potentially I get effective. this and I will state this is a close call. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to make two other points. One is I woke up yesterday morning to find out that a lot of people who really love Bernie Sanders decided that I was some sort of massive hypocrite because Barack Obama went on Fox News when I worked in the White House, including doing interviews with Bill O'Reilly, and that somehow this meant that I was being unfair to Bernie Sanders. And that was not my intent. And if people had read my book, which I don't expect uh, everyone has, but I talk a lot about this because it within the te- in the years I worked for Obama, I was a big advocate for a long time of doing exactly what Bernie Sanders did, which is go into the lion's den. I did not give two fucks about Fox viewers. That was not who my audience was. Yeah. We did this in the 2008 campaign. Obama went on Bill O'Reilly uh, the night of the Republican convention. And then I McCain speech on the Republican convention. And we did it because we knew we'd get a ton of coverage. And it would be on all the morning shows the next day. If there had been uh, active social media, it would have been a viral moment. Like you were doing it not for it is a setting for a press conference. It is not an actual attempt to communicate with those folks. I was I pushed for that strategy. And my experience from doing that was twofold. One, that it had much less impact on. Let me put it this way. My experience, the lessons I learned from doing that, which I talk about in the book, a lot are that I was wrong initially and that Obama's appearances on Fox did more to legitimize Fox than they did to help Obama spread his message to Fox News viewers. Yeah. And that was the like that it is based on that experience that I believe that it is a mistake for these Democrats to do this. Not for themselves. I understand why it makes sense for themselves, but why I think it's a mistake in the long run in a very important effort to show Fox for what it is. Second this is also not me advocating that you sh- we should ignore Fox News viewers. And just to set the table stakes here, Fox shows get on average 2 million viewers. Yeah. That is a fraction of the Fox News problem in this country. The actual Fox News problem is not what people tune into on Tucker Carlson at night, although that is fucking gross and shouldn't be on the air. It is how Facebook has weaponized Fox's content and spread it throughout the internet to groups much, much, much larger than people who actually watch Fox. So my strategy for reaching Fox viewers is to go, or quote unquote Fox viewers, is to go around Fox, not through Fox. So it should be by campaigning in the communities where... In rural communities, it should be doing local media in community and and rural and more conservative communities. It should be to use digital advertising to target people who we know are are receiving Fox propaganda with countervailing narratives about 
why Democrats are good and why Trump is a problematic president who has broken his promises. That is, it's not an, it's, this is not an idea to ignore Fox viewers. It is to find a way to get to those viewers without padding Rupert Murdoch's pot, pocket so he continue to fund a global effort to destabilize the uh, liberal democracies with racist propaganda. Yeah. And I and look, looking back on Obama's interview with O'Reilly and some of the other things he did, I agree that that was a mistake and actually helped legitimize Fox because he was the president of the United States at the time. And Bill O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly was an asshole to him and interrupted him. And did, I mean, it was it was it was totally not worth it. <laughs> um, and I do yeah, think that, that one is also just for the context of that is that was actually for Fox, not Fox News, but for Fox's airing of the Super Bowl. Right. Right. And right. We had a big we hadn't done Fox in a very long time at that point, And we had a big internal debate about whether we should do it or shouldn't do it. And. Ultimately, we decided to do it because it was on Fox, although some of it aired on Fox News, and because we had done every other Super Bowl interview, regardless of the interviewer, for six years or seven years at that point, whatever it was. I think that we probably made the wrong call, but it was not an easy call. We were not salivating at the opportunity to talk to Bill O'Reilly. We just thought it would be easier to do than not do, and that was probably a mistake, and I take responsibility for that because I was there then, but... Um, we it wasn't something we were excited about, I'll tell you that. Yeah, and I will say, like, while I think it's okay and possibly effective for candidate Bernie Sanders, candidate Pete Buttigieg, candidate Amy Klobuchar uh, to go on Fox News during this campaign, I do not think it's okay for President Sanders or President Buttigieg or President Klobuchar to sit down with interviews with them once they're in the White House. And I would fucking ban Fox reporters from the briefing room in the White House. Like, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice about doing that. Like, my, my only consideration is like, how do we communicate and pierce the bubble of some of these voters in an unimpeded direct way, just with pure messaging and pure communication where you can get right to them? And the second that you have to go through these pundits and these lackeys that work for Fox, it's not fucking worth it. <laughs> it's just not, you know? Like- I think the, the thing to track on the Bernie town hall mm. is not what happened in that one hour. Right. Right. But is then how has Fox weaponized parts of that content, both on social and the other programs, to use it as an opportunity to distort his message, not to push it? Yeah. And that is a, that is a lesson I learned from... Obama interviews and even some of my own appearances on Fox, which I was on Fox News Sunday, which is on Fox Network and Fox News a couple of times when I was White House in White House senior advisor. And I would think I did fine on it, right? But then whatever like they could take that would be least helpful to Obama or most hurtful to Obama and make that the clip they ran all day, that's what they would do. Yeah. And so to judge the true impact of how Fox did it, it's not just what happened in that hour. It's what how did they use that content, particularly on Facebook, to uh, to distort the message and push their push their larger propaganda efforts? I think that's an important thing to look at. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, I have a lot. I have too many. I have too many thoughts. About I this do. Moment. No, I know. Well, you, you know, you wrote a lot about it in your book, which everyone should go buy. Um, okay, when we when we come back, we will have our uh, interview that we recorded last week with Chelsea Handler. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. On the pod today, we have the best-selling author of the brand new book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, Chelsea Handler. Hi. You're finally here. <laughs> Hi. I'm very happy to be here, guys. Thank you for having me, especially you, John Lovett. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> You're welcome. It's great to have you here. Uh, Chelsea, we haven't spoken since uh, Robert Mueller finished his investigation. And since you write about him in this book quite a bit as uh, someone that you're sexually attracted to. Mm. Um, Take a number. <laughs> how are you doing since the end of the investigation? Were you disappointed? Are you waiting for more? How, how did you feel? Um, I am not. I Until I f- read the full Mueller report, I can't make any judgments about where our relationship is going to go sexually. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I still have I, I what I've learned through this administration and I what I've learned through the last two years is that I am a naive person and I believe that good will prevail. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to just choose to be stuck in that naivete and and believe that something good is going to come out. of. I mean, a, a million things did come out of it. There mm-hmm. were how many indictments? Thirty seven. Yeah. So that's something. <laughs> and um, I'm still attracted to him. I, I'm not actually going to pursue it right now because, first of all, he's married. And second of all, I right. haven't seen the report. Right. Can I can I just follow up on that? Um, does, Are you attracted to him? No, that's not my type. I'm not like a G man. That's not my thing. But I was gonna ask that. More of does, like a wayfish award winner. <laughs> I love a. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I love a sort of a wayfish award. I I would say my type is Lannister. Um, <laughs> but um, no, but uh, does his politics and his success in bringing down Trump affect how attractive? you are to Robert Mueller, and would that also apply to Paul Ryan? Hmm. I 
don't want my love to be conditional. And so if I'm judging him solely based on, you know, he's a T crosser and an I daughter. I think he forgot a couple T's, <laughs> a couple <laughs> I's or somebody did. I think you're right. Uh, but I am going to have faith in the fact that that is a person I am attracted to because it's the exact opposite of anything that I've ever been witness to in my life with men being responsible and being like rule, you know, rule oriented. I like that. I like that. My dad was a bit of a shyster. So anyone who's got their <laughs> shit together and who looks like they have an eight or six pack possibly underneath that white shirt when he walks through hallways, which I've known everybody there. I'm not the only person who has watched him do this. There's anyone that age that can keep a six or eight pack in their 70s. And that's my message for today. My name is Chelsea Handler. You write a lot about your political awakening in this book. Um, Walk us through your journey here, starting from. I wish uh, you wouldn't use words like journey. Journey. (laughs) The Bachelor ruined that. They ruined words like universe and gratitude, too. (laughs) Words we could have all been using. Um, From from the moment um, that I was on your show and I guaranteed you that Hillary Clinton was going to win. (laughs) to election night to the you know early days with your therapist after the uh, election well what happened to me was i had which i'm sure many people can relate to i had a major kind of mental i just couldn't understand how something like this could have happened i didn't understand why that i didn't think i thought the adults were supposed to take care of politics and that you know you weren't like super into politics before that or were you no, I, I mean, I was active in, during campaigns, you yeah. know, you know, when there was a presidential election. I wasn't definitely running out to the midterms when I was like in my early 30s voting, I doubt. I don't think I was doing that. And once I became a little bit more aware of politics as I was in this industry, which is hard to not, you know, be aware of it, I did more. But no, this was like a mental, like, what the hell, how could this possibly happen. And so what I ended up doing was going to this psychiatrist who I had interviewed on my Netflix show, my last talk show. And about adolescent brain development. And when I, when after the election, I thought my outrage was so high and at such a 10 that I needed to harness it and figure out why the hell I was behaving like such a spoiled brat. Yeah. You know, because that's how it was. And what I discovered through him was that it was, I mean, I bitched and moaned about Donald Trump for the first three or four sessions at like $600 an hour and I would have paid double. Um, <laughs> but a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of therapists got to buy boats in those early months in LA. A lot of very, uh, begrudgingly happy therapist around the Los Angeles environs. It was, uh, I like when you use words like that. Um, <laughs> I, and I, and I loved it. I was like, this is awesome. I'm really getting all this off my chest and I'll leave here and I won't have more anger. But what it ended up coming, what I ended up finding out was that what Donald Trump becoming president represented to me was the world being unhinged and un- out of balance. And that's what happened to me when I was a little girl. My brother died when I was nine. He said he was coming back and that he would never leave me alone with these people, meaning my parents. And he never came back because he died. So the relationship and the trigger that Donald Trump was for me, I think, is a lot of people's, you know, early childhood trauma where you just don't feel like you have any control and you don't know what to do. And I wanted to dive into why I couldn't get past it, why I couldn't turn the news off, why I was in the cycle of, you know, kind of like self-abuse. Yeah. Or, you know, it's cancer causing, as you guys well know. So it was, I wanted to get out of my headspace and find a way to find, like, happiness again while Donald Trump was still the president. So I did throw myself into the midterms, and that gave me something for a while. But once the midterms were done, I was like, fuck, I'm exhausted again. I don't want to deal with politics. Like, I don't want to, I mean, luckily, so many hands were on deck that we were able to make, you know, so many people were able to make so many great things happen. But at the same time, you're so burnt out, as I know you can all relate. So, yeah. Yeah. 
It's tough. It's all the time. It's constant. It's all the time. What have you learned about effective activism it's now that you're active in politics? Um, I've learned that you're really of no use to other people until you clean out your own injuries and yeah. your own messes. And that I've learned to meditate, a sentence I thought would never come out of my mouth. I've gotten completely like focused on doing good things and not just thinking about how to feed my ego or feed myself or take a paycheck and do another thing and do another thing. Like I really sat with myself and said, what do I want to contribute that's worthwhile? Because if this is where the direction of like, you know, our society is going, then we need a big opposite tick of things. And I'm responsible for putting a lot of shitty messaging out there. So I wanted to really think about, okay, are you just a loudmouth who's getting a bunch of paychecks or do you want to be a loudmouth who says something of import? And so, you know, I felt like this book, I finally had something to say. And I w- if I'm going to make a career over sharing, like at least now I'm over sharing stuff that's helpful to people, not just like all the guys I had sex with in my 20s. <laughs> I think like, you know, part of the reason we started Pod Save America is we felt frustrated with the way people analyze politics on television and with the kind of stilted language people use. Donald Trump is many things, but he's not stilted, right? I think he communicates to his people in a way that makes sense to them, that makes him seem like them. Um, I think that's something you do well, right? I think you're, I don't think anybody believes you're um, reading from talking points. (laughs) (laughs) And if they are, we should find the person writing them and put them in some sort of cell. But the, um, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I think there's this question, like, do Democrats know how to talk to people? You know, uh, uh, different kinds of communities, different kinds of people. Do they sound like regular people or do they sound like Washington? And I guess when you see these 2020 candidates, when you see the conversation that we're hearing right now, are there any are there any are there any people that stand out, not because you like them more than you like the others, but just because you think they they sound real to you? They sound like uh, uh, the way people talk? Well, no. I mean, some of them are they're totally politicized or political or whatever the right frame of reference is there because yeah, I mean Kamala Harris is a politician. Elizabeth Warren I find to be a little bit more grounded. I feel like she's a little bit and Beto is Beto and Pete Buttigieg is a normal person. That did I say it right? Buttigieg. Buttigieg. edge edge. And Beto. Oh, he wants the D Beto Buttigieg. Okay, well, when they become the president, I'll get it right. And it's Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're also working on a a project on white privilege. Tell us us Uh, about that. I did a documentary for Netflix. What have you learned? So for that, it's kind of the same thing as the book. I just did a deep dive into, like, what what am I doing with myself and why am I constantly looking in my own lane instead of looking outside my lane? And, uh, And I was kind of embarrassed when I really looked around and thought about all the that everything I've gotten in my career when I really it's not about talent because there's too many untalented people that are successful and vice versa. So I started to really pay attention to black authors and started to, especially after the election, because I realized how bad the racism was, another thing I was naive to, and wanted to have a conversation about privilege because I did a documentary for Netflix about race on racism where we just kind of slightly skimmed the surface. And to me, that was the most compelling one for me in terms of learning. So we just went We went down south and we talked to people about the issue of white privilege and whether people think it exists or not, um, because I certainly didn't think about it in terms of my own success until I was 40. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, wait, why do I keep getting rewarded every time I quit a job? Why do I get another offer and I get to do this and I get to do that? I've never struggled for anything. You know, I've had heartbreak and my brother died and that was trauma, but I've never really like been hungry or had to, you know, I waited tables for five years. That was as bad as things got. And... 
and I felt embarrassed that I'm not as good of an advocate or ally as I can be. And with the platform that I have and the ability that I have to do focus on things that are actually more meaningful, I figured, why not do it? And it was a hard conversation because nobody wants, white people do not want to talk about this issue. Yeah. And I wanted to hang out my own privilege to dry, to be like, I'm aware, I get it, I get this house and I get all of that. Um, you know, and... And white people are just like, you know, again, it's a black person's problem, even though it's our problem. Uh, so last question. Obviously, we're out of the prediction business now. Uh, is Donald Trump going to win in 2020? Can you <laughs> I don't us, uh... do predictions either anymore. <laughs> I mean, honestly, what do you think, jo- uh, John? You look sick almost at the thought. Well, <laughs> I thought you just meant generally. Well, <laughs> I feel great. Thanks a lot. Is there something wrong with my skin? Is it, it. My, is my pallor? You look flavescent. Yeah, there's a tone of flavescence. <laughs> is my the shirt. Are my humors out of line? <laughs> That shirts a lot. Are you do- Let me know when you're done. Let- get I'm it out. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I don't know what's going to happen, Chelsea. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Most presidents get reelected. We just got to, you know, got to get to work, guys. I'm just happy that we're ending this on such a high note. <laughs> <laughs> what's the name of the book, Sean? The book is... <laughs> Life Will Be the Death of Me. Yes, and I'm it's coming. It's fantastic. I'm going on it. tour, too. I blurbed it. I blurbed you your book. You blurbed my book. Yes, did. you did. Thank you very much for you're that. You're very welcome. I'll go check my email. I don't I don't believe I was asked. <laughs> well, you're also just you're you're cultivating other great authors like Alyssa Master Monica. You're just bringing them up through your system. <laughs> right, right. I'm <laughs> cultivating her. She doesn't need me to cultivate her. But yes, I love <laughs> Alyssa. I'm gonna see her this weekend when I head to New York. Oh fun. Yes, and I'm going on tour, LiveNation.com, for uh, tickets to to be on tour. I'm going to, like, 23 cities. Whoa, cool. All right, get some tickets, everyone, and go buy uh, Life Will Be the Death of Me. It's a fantastic book. Chelsea Handler, thank you for joining us. Thanks, boys. Thanks to Natasha Bertrand for joining us today. Thanks to Chelsea Handler for joining us. And uh, got John and Tommy here, too, because we just wanted to say a special goodbye to one of our very first... Crooked Media employees who's leaving us for bigger and better things. I mean, let's, let's. Time will tell if they're bigger and better. <laughs> I'm not ready to admit that yet. Corinne is one of our very first employees. She was with us when our office was essentially a one bedroom apartment with one bathroom that also happened to be in the kitchen. Uh, she produced Pod Save America. She produced Pod Save the World for a while. She has gone to Europe with us to do live shows. She is. To run our development. She's done literally everything you can do with this company. This company wouldn't exist if not for the work Corinne did. She helped develop Keep It. She helped produce the HBO show. She's fantastic. We're going to miss her. We're fucked. <laughs> Just kidding. We're so excited for Corinne. It's Very excited for Corinne. Sad to lose Corinne. All kidding aside, we will miss Corinne. She's done such an amazing job. All right. Well, that's that's our show for today. And, uh, and we'll see you guys next week. Oh, I should say. There will be no pod on Monday. We're doing it Tuesday. Tuesday afternoon. Monday, the Gillibrand episode's going out. That's right. Re-released. It's not Re- new. Right. No one, get, no one get too excited. But if you haven't heard it, it's new to you. It's new to you. And we will be back with uh, another brand new pod, the three of us, on Tuesday afternoon. So have a good weekend, everyone. Bye, everybody. Happy Mueller Day.
Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.